0: Welcome to the Hit Local Play Global podcast, the Tennis Victoria podcast, where we sit down and showcase the great people in the Victorian tennis community. I'm Sean O'Kane and I'm joined here by Gab Tobias. Welcome, Gab.
1: Thank you, Sean. Happy podcast day. Here we are again. I always love doing this because it means we're about to learn more about someone new and obviously always exciting in the Victorian tennis community. And today... It is none other than Glenn Busby from the Keong Lawn Tennis Club, superstar of the Tennis Seniors Victoria Tour and International Seniors Tour. And this one's very timely, Sean, because we only last week announced Glenn as the Tennis Senior of the Year at our Victorian Tennis Awards. Now, this was recorded beforehand, and obviously we didn't, tell glenn i don't think we even knew at the time um, but obviously so i just wanted to call that out that he um, has since been named our senior of the year but before that obviously caught up for this podcast
0: and if you do want to go back and, and relive the virtual uh victorian tennis awards from 2021 that's live on our website so yes. you can check that out as well and see glenn receive his award but Let's hear from our 30-plus Senior of the Year for 2021, Glenn Busby, interviewed by Tennis Victoria's Senior Coaching Leader, Paul Aitken. Take it away, Paul.
2: Welcome, Glenn, to the show today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. It's certainly an honor to be with you. And when I look at your resume, you've certainly done it all. There's just so many things that we could talk about today. And if I was to read your resume fully, it might take a lot longer than what this podcast we can actually go for. So welcome. How are you feeling today? Excellent.
3: Thanks for being on. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. It's been actually good going back and, and looking through the past, I guess, what's happened in my life of tennis, I suppose.
2: When I think of you, a few words come to mind. First of all, I think of Daniel Craig, youthful, energetic, innovative, got this incredible growth mindset that we'll explore more today. Just want to start with the first question. You grew up in, and I only just found this out when we were talking off air, in Clifton Hill. I always thought it was Greensboro, Rosanna, but take us back to where it all began and who inspired you.
3: Yeah, look, my dad was president, actually, of uh, Clifton Hill Tennis Club, and about four years of age, he used to get me out on the tennis court, and we'd hit some tennis balls, no technique whatsoever, I'd have a <laughs> normal tennis racket, normal tennis balls, so it was a heavy, heavy tennis racket uh, as such. And then at five, I actually played my first competitive match at a place called Northcote Tennis Centre. and. Look, I was extremely lucky having a brother that was three years old me as well because he, throughout my whole life, I, he was someone who would challenge me and I was able to compete with someone a little bit stronger and a little bit older and, and that was an enormous benefit to me. But, you know, at this Northcote Tennis Centre, there was five players that ended up going overseas, either going to college or playing professional tennis, such as uh, Wayne Kelly, the, the Kenways. And I just can't think of the last person that I remember off there, but it was a, it was a little breeding ground of tennis players that came out of this little center at the back of a, a squash uh, hall. So, yeah, tennis was with sport it was a totally different way of growing up to what it is today.
2: Well, at 5 years old with a full-size racket. It's astonishing. And and obviously that was in the 60s as well, but what I guess what you're saying is really it becomes about the environment as opposed to the facility.
3: Oh, 100%. And I think, you know, as you read of all these breeding grounds of of athletes around the world, it's come back from the environment and your passion for something rather than in some ways the facilities is a detriment to growth when you have too much there. So, you know, the place in Clifton Hill was a small little centre, It is section one Saturday afternoon. It was a great breeding ground and more importantly, an unbelievable family experience. It was probably, I can go back to 20 families that we used to go to all different places throughout the state playing country tournaments and things like that. It was an amazing development compared to today.
2: Yeah, yeah. Very, very similar. I've uh, similar memories of that myself. And so you're obviously a very talented junior. Who coached you?
3: Well, it was was interesting because I went from Clifton Hill, I went to Rosanna at 10 years of age, and then I went to McLeod Tennis Club, and there was a guy there called Brian Beers, you may know.
2: Yeah, I know Brian Beers, yes. Yeah, I can
3: remember. It was 20 cents for a 30-minute lesson on a Sunday morning. Wow. And and, you would go and give 20 cents to his wife, and uh, you'd hop on the court, and we basically hit. I don't know, Brian then went on on to bigger and better things after that from McLeod Tennis Club, but... You know, another thing comes up during that time from 10 to about 14, I actually played football and and I loved my football. And I think, I know I'll keep comparing to players today is that it is such a good environment to be involved in a team sport as well as an individual sport. And I had four or five years of amazing experiences in football as well during that time. But yeah, so getting on to coaching that time was Brian and really I just played. I would play five days a week. It was just get out there and just hit and just have fun. There wasn't a lot of technique going on at the...
2: Those days. <laughs> well, that's a very interesting debate from, from a coaching perspective, isn't it? If I, I'd imagine you, if you played football, you'd be very similar to a Boomer Harvey. You've got those just incredible legs, that engine to just keep running all day. You ended up playing the tour. Give us some memorable matchups. How did that all work out? When did you first go overseas? What are your memories there?
3: Well, up until about 18, I'd actually played, a couple of things probably before that even, is that there's a sliding door situation. You know, we played the Australian Championships in the 18s and played with Warren Murrah in the doubles and we won the Australian junior doubles. And in the quarterfinals, I played a guy called Greg Druitt, and you know I was uh, six four four two up. I remember this vividly, and and I ended up losing the match. And had I won that match, I may have gone on to then travel overseas. And uh, I didn't, and and it was an enormously frustrating time during that period because there were so many of my friends and colleagues who, who were playing overseas, and I never got that opportunity. My parents didn't have the finances to sort of send me away. You know, I really didn't have a mentor around at that stage to really tell me what i needed to do and where i should be going and, and how i needed to go about it so i ended up doing his ed uh, degree and we'll get back to that i guess in in the stage but that that really was now when i look back i was so so fortunate not to have gone away overseas and played at that time and actually do my degree it was a, a really really good time for me
2: yeah look six four four two up and then potentially you go overseas, but yeah, you've ended up having this wonderful learning experience. Let's talk about that just for a little bit. So PE what does it mean to have a, I guess, a tertiary degree? And how's that shaped your coaching?
3: Look at the four years that I did and I actually went out teaching after that, there, there was two things. One is I was actually able to still play the New Zealand satellite, which was about seven weeks while I was doing my degree. Every sort of December, January, start of February, I got about eight tournaments in. So I always looked at that being my overseas tour every year while I was doing it. But the phys degree itself, I got to learn about the body. I got to learn how it works. I got to learn about so many areas, uh, you know, biomechanics. I really specialized in that. So to understand what's important in how the body moves and, and, you know, the physiology of every muscle and ligament and nerve, what's involved in the body. And we actually, you know, we cut up bodies, we cut up uh, monkeys. Such that it was, you know, the experiences I had with that were just phenomenal. And then actually being able to go out and teach that, I learned a lot about teaching at that stage too. Like a twenty-one-year-old guy uh, was out teaching you seventeen-year-old girls, sixteen-year-old girls. That was an interesting time, even just in itself. But visit look, I couldn't have been luckier. You know, looking back now, what it actually gave me with uh, knowledge-wise and. The want to grow, I guess, the want to learn and keep learning throughout all these years is one of the probably the most important things to me. Just not to stagnate and just say, you've done that. But I had some great lecturers and you get to, during that time, you're involved with some amazing athletes. There was a lot of AFL footballers in there and swimmers and, you know, to be involved with them, to learn about their journeys and and where they come from and and how they got to where they were was fantastic. There was one guy called Rod Ashman, who was a great Carlton footballer. Lee Carlson. And you know, Rod would come Monday morning almost every uh, week with a you know, a black eye or whatever it. and it was just like all these things that you remember that but he was such a tenacious sort of athlete. And and so you you learn and grow from them as well and take the best parts of all these athletes that you were you're actually in class with.
2: Yeah, um, I I don't think there's any substitute for having a really good base of learning. And that's certainly what a PE or exercise science degree will give you when you move into coaching. And I think that ability to to critically analyze what you're doing and reflect is just so important, isn't it?
3: Yeah. See, I think today, when we look at coaches today, there's some disappointments and and there's also the, the opposite. But, you know, I've had coaches who, from internationally that come and work with me that have done their three, four year degree over in Europe. And it's almost compulsory before you can then go and specialize in tennis after that so you know learning about how the body moves what are the energy systems you know it's the psychology of sport uh, the physiology of sport you know kinesiology of, of which movements go where it, it's like today a lot of times the coaches will perhaps play on tour be a player their memories of what they were brought up is from their tennis coach and then they go into a course and sometimes it only takes a a weekend or two weekends to do and and then you're out coaching. And I suppose I'd love seeing the growth of people. And unfortunately, you know, there's not happening probably as much as what I would love to uh, see it happen so that we become the forefront of tennis rather than, I, I guess, restricted in in what we can really offer players and 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 again as i think the most important for me is growth it's like how do i keep learning how can i keep improving how can i keep imparting knowledge to players and perhaps to other coaches that you've got to make them better has been really really important
2: indeed just having a growth mindset and trying to be the best you can possibly be if that is your chosen career. So yeah wise wise words there. Look I want to go back now to the local clubs that you started with that you coached at and it's just astonishing when I look at your resume again. So you, you first started at McLeod Tennis Club well over 40 years ago, Research, Viewbank, and now what we know as Vita, which is a very successful business. Tell us about the early days of coaching and what coaching in a club environment meant to you.
3: Probably in every one of those centres, I started off with probably one or two, maybe five kids and then threw them into and that was the thing that I loved doing is not going to a centre that's got 200 players and developing that way for me it was all about okay, starting from a real low base and I intentionally did that where it went and trying to really grow it into something that was totally different and really trying to promote the club really develop the club so they had a lot of young teams pennant teams and there were so many good players that came out of these environments that you don't necessarily get from other bigger clubs necessarily you know I learned a lot in these times uh, and that was where I did my probably my real big growth learning how to coach and we also had state squads at these centres and I remember vividly doing the state squads of Uban Tennis and, and there were so many good players to come out of the, this, these particular squads that we did and I think for me personally I think that's where it should be going back to not being centralised but being out into the clubs so that the members get to see the talent developing and evolving and uh, seeing what is actually happening for the future when they're all in at one big centre in Golden Park I don't think the local members get to see what is actually happening and, and who was out there and the talent and actually getting them to play for the local club, I think is really, really important. So yeah, look, I love those times and certainly over a long period of time that there was a lot of players that came out of those facilities at that time.
2: Yeah. Just rolling with that for a moment. So a couple of names that come to mind for me and a, a guy I used to practice with a little bit actually and Matt Green and of course, in recent times, Andrew Whittington and Robin Morsley. So tell us a little bit about some of those players and there's just so many more, but they certainly got the most out of what they had Yeah, look, under your guidance.
3: Yeah, well, Matt Breen was a guy that he, he's actually over in America now, but he played in the Australian Open. He was probably the most tenacious player uh, I've ever probably worked with. Did he have the skills of some of the players? Absolutely not. But he worked and he worked and he worked. I mean, you, you just... He was one of those guys who would basically vomit on the court from just his work ethic. And you couldn't ask more from him. And he was one of your traditional grinders, I guess, that a journeyman on the tour. Had he had a little bit more hype, perhaps, and just a few more skills, he could have gone on to anything. But, you know, they're the type of players you love, absolutely love working with. It'll give you everything. And he felt such a great rapport with these sort of players. Andrew Whittington. You know, I had Andrew from seven. Very interesting. I don't don't think you mind me saying all these things, but Andrew from seven, he ended up being at about 16, I think in the top three or four in the world in the ITFs. He had a single-handed backhand at that stage. Amazing talent. Went on to Tennis Australia program and got changed into a two-handed backhand and it never really came back from that. Andrew was a player that ended up coming Uh, I suppose he got lost in four or five years. He was working in that program and traveling with Tennis Australia. And at about maybe 21, he came back and he's about 600 in the world. In the next two or three years, he got down to 150. Now, Andrew a player that had so, so much talent. If you could combine Andrew and Matt Green together, you would have it so much. Super player. <laughs> Absolutely. But Andrew actually, he was always surprised at how well he'd done. And that in a player is really difficult to get over that. He didn't think he could get to 150. I actually thought that he could have got to, you know, down to 70. He had so much talent. But then it's like you're trying to combine all the things, you know, the mental side, the physical side, the ability to work. Andrew knows he wasn't necessarily the greatest work on the tour and sometimes mentally, he struggled a little bit, but he's such a talented athlete and had so much skill. You know, and, and I suppose when you look at working with these players from a young kid to when they finish their tennis, you don't get that opportunity very often. So often, you know, players, as you know, will go from one coach to the next coach to the next coach, and you're always trying to chain and add to what they've got, which is not always necessarily bad. But to actually have a player from a young age to take him through to the end is it's an absolute thrill. I mean, it's one of the joys of tennis coaching. And I guess, you know, there was a, a couple of others that came through. As I said, there was Robin Wardsley and Bianca Acquistapacci. Bianca yes. was two both sides. Look, they, you know, and, and I hate not talking about others, but I mean, they, there was so much skill and talent amongst these players. You know, it restrains those sort of talents it was a lot harder for them to get overseas. They probably got into the 200s in the world and they are enormous talent, but it was the financial cost for Australians going, and there wasn't support around what there is today. So there was always those challenges, but great athletes, great workers, phenomenal talents, but, you know, at the end of it, most of it tends to get back down to the mental side of it, that, that absolute belief in, uh, in yourself. And, you know, players would compete Australia-wide, but never really had the opportunities to travel and compete on a world standing to really understand what's like overseas. Whereas players today, other than the COVID at times, uh, it's pretty easy for them to get away and get those
2: experiences. We can talk about the disadvantages they had at those times, be it financial, but they also had a lot of... Advantages. So I think you and I discussed this a lot, that they had the opportunity, these players coming through now, to play against older players.
3: I know we've talked about this pennant growing up was the most amazing thing that we had here in Victoria. And I don't know of a competition worldwide that was probably stronger than this. You know, we would train all week just to play this one match on the weekend. And when I look at play, every player would come back from overseas. Our Davis Cup players, all the best players who were ranked between, you know, could have been between 50 and and 300 would come back and play pennant. You had so many talented players and you would get to see, you know, I'll I'll name just a few. There was, I know my very first pennant match was a, there was a guy called Neil Fraser who happened to be one in the world not long before that played a guy called Colin Stubbs.
2: Um, Not too shabby, he could
3: play. You know, and that was my first pennant of A grade at that stage and, and I had a scholarship at Royal South Yarra. And to watch these guys play, I learned so much in this one match. that It would take a year to probably learn from your coaching what you actually saw from these players. I mean, you know, the players that played our state grade and I'll probably miss out 50, 60 players that all could have played number one in our grade one or our premier leagues. You've got, you know, as I said, Neil Fraser, Frank Sedgman, Peter McNamara, Paul McNamara, Cliff Letcher. Bill Durham, Cash, Philippuses, you know, and then you go back to guys called Chris Cashel, Brad Guan, Carly, Eek, uh Bill Any Ewitz, Noel Phillips. You know, you go to Warren
2: through. Ma, it just keeps going on and on.
3: Yeah, they're all on tour, and there was guys before them that would be travelling, you know, all the way. They were just so talented, so talented. They were just the greatest of tennis players, but that's when Australia really dominated the scene overseas. I mean, we really did dominate. And these players, you would learn so much from these guys. And, you know, there's a guy called Mark Hartnett. Who played yeah,
2: extraordinarily golfers. good player, Yeah,
3: So much talent, and this all gets back to timing. You know, he probably had more talent than Cashy did at that time, but through injuries and whatever... I learned from training with him, as an example, you know, learned these little dark angles and drop shots and what other players didn't have. And you'd learn so much. You know, Colin Stubbs, for instance, technically very, very limited, the biggest grinder in the world. And he helped me a lot. He would get down there and train on a Saturday beforehand. And he put me through the paces. And I was so fortunate to have people around me, especially that time at Royal South Yarra. There were so many top players around. You know, Cedric Mason, who's the members manager here at Keyon. Of course to max pedman to holland Stubbs, and a guy that i worked a lot with brian casey and he was the guy that helped me a lot in my young days he was actually a chiropractor out in eltham so it was close by and i used to train with him but he helped me i used to spend enormous amount of time with him learning about life too which was really really important
2: yeah but everyone needs that role model or a mentor along the way
3: totally totally and you know he sadly he passed away this week Uh, Yes, And, you know, you certainly need those people around you. And that's where it's hard. I think for a lot of the young guys these days, you keep moving from coach to coach to coach. They don't actually develop, you know, that pathway in life as well. You're getting bits and pieces of information all the time. But we all have different journeys.
2: Yeah, I guess what we're agreeing on is that all talent comes out of essentially a local club at some point. And, you know, we need to really nurture that and absolutely get behind the club as an environment to really inspire this talent.
3: Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, the local clubs are the grassroots. And if we don't keep developing those areas and putting, it doesn't have to be money, but I mean, it's really trying to keep the, I suppose, going back a little bit, but junior tennis at the moment, there's a, a couple of, we digressing a little bit, but there's a couple of areas such as Diamond Creek, Preston area, junior tennis has gone. The, all their junior competitions have gone. And it's so sad to think that there is no junior comp at all. And, you know, when I grew up, it was like, you know, 25 junior teams, boys, 25 girls in the mornings, and there was kids everywhere. And, and I know there's so much competition for tennis now. There's so many competing sports and IT areas for, for kids to get involved in. But we really need to be putting more and more effort and time back into the grassroots tennis.
2: Would you say Australia, though, on the whole, where our roots and our heritage is more about club as opposed to looking at an American model of centres and country clubs and this sort of thing, we're about team and tribalism? Would you say that is more of a trait of us?
3: In the past, 100%, absolutely. And that's probably my little concern a little bit is we're starting to move away from that a little bit. We've lost the family emphasis. You know, growing up, Saturday afternoon tennis, as an example, you'd get there at one o'clock and you'd finish at seven or eight o'clock at night. You play three sets for the day. But the family side, the club side, the joining with people, the, the social side, of it was extremely important, extremely important. And, you know, we've lost all that. The night tennis is even dying to, which took over the weekend tennis. I know we're sort of digressing a little bit here into different areas but it's like you know we're trying to keep tennis going you can in America at the moment you've got that thing called pickleball and it's developing enormously over there and you can understand why too because you know it's a smaller court less skills involved and you can finish in a shorter period of time the more mature age groups are getting involved in it there's a lot of finances being put into these centers and into tournaments and you know I know the USTA are a little bit concerned of taking over a lot of their tennis courts the courts are being transferred Transferred into pickleball courts. So if you can get two to four courts set up in a smaller area and more people playing, fantastic.
2: Yeah, excellent thoughts there. We really are in this perfect storm, really. And a lot of sports are suffering the same fate in that, you know, there's a lot of sedentary behaviour, obviously, you know, decline in motor skills, our attention spans are different. So we've got some challenges in tennis, no doubt. I want to just actually now focus on you actually went away, you had a, a bit of a sabbatical away from your clubs, or were lucky enough to be able to get away from your clubs for a few months. And you worked with a couple of players. And some of these players are phenomenal. So Vince Spadia, Aaron Krikstein and Amanda Kutzer. Just regale us with some of those memories.
3: Those two years really established a lot of my thoughts of how to coach. Vince got to 22 in the world. Aaron was a top 10 player. Amanda ended up getting to number five in the world. And what you realise is that these players work on nothing different to what your elite players or your players back home. The only difference is it's a lot of fine tuning. You're worried about hitting a ball within a couple of millimetres <laughs> rather than got a, a, a different window of opportunity. The pressures on these players from parents. I mean, if I go to Vince as an example, Vince was an amazing talent. He worked unbelievably hard, but his income decided how the parents lived from week to week. He bought the house. They didn't work. They just travelled around with him. They controlled every single part of his life. He wasn't allowed to go out. He wasn't allowed to do things. As a 21 year old, he's more like mentally like a 16 year old, but physically and on the tennis court, he was an enormous talent. He had one of the best backhands in the world. I remember going to uh, San Jose with him and he got the stage, he beat Sampras in a quarter final. It was the biggest match. He just had so much talent. But I think that the mental side of him had an interesting mindset as a player. And again, looking at Aaron, he getting to number five in the world, that was during a certain time. He could have stayed in tennis for a lot longer, but he just didn't want to change his game. And biomechanically, he was sound. He was more like the old-style tennis to the modern-day tennis, and he was more like an old-style tennis player. He just wouldn't get out of that realm of really thinking about how I can develop my tennis because he got to number 10 in the top 10 in the world playing a certain way. Why do I need to change? That was his mindset. But talking about the last one is Amanda Coatsa. Amanda's an amazing story. She was a girl of five foot two, and she got to about 15 in the world and realized with she she was doing and how she was playing, she was never going to get to top 10 in the world. She had pretty much a continental to eastern forehand and she needed to change. And one of the greatest athletes you've ever seen, she just bounced. Literally, she was like a trampoline the whole time she walked. So she would be out there and I can always vividly remember, she worked on changing a group round to a semi-western forehand at 15 in the, in the world. That year, she would come off training sessions with blood pouring off her hand from blisters. And it was just day in, day out. The blisters were always there. Blood was always there and she just wow day after day after day. Now, that next year, she played Steffi Graf seven times in the first round. That was in her draws because her ranking had dropped down while she's trying to develop the game and the seventh time she beat her and then the next year she got into the top five in the world and I guess what you look at is here is a player who just wanted to work so hard had her why, she knew where she wanted to go and had the mindset that she was going to get there and was prepared to do anything. So I was very very fortunate to be amongst these sort of players growing up over there for these two years. Very fortunate to get those two years away to see how these players trained and what was important and to see players really as individuals. They were all so so different in in their makeups, and I think you know as coaches this is one of the important things of how do we look as an individual and treat them as an individual rather than treating them as everyone the same and I think this is where you know a lot of times kids can get into various squads and we have our various ways that we want to train players and they're all treated the same this is what's going on in tennis at the moment rather than looking for their individuality and I look at someone like an Andrew Whittington for his single-handed backhand was world-class absolutely world-class but at the Time, you know, everyone was hitting two-handed backhands. Now, if you looked at him today, you know, being able to hit his single-handed backhand, well, he would have fitted in so well with what's going on. So, you know, we've got to be careful, I guess, of putting people into boxes and saying, like, hey, okay, this is the way you should be playing. But, yeah, look, those two years the way of travelling with players and learning how to travel with players, I never had that opportunity to do that while I was back here in Australia. You just never get those opportunities.
2: I guess your move into that space was a little bit different though, because you actually, you got a degree, you're obviously a very accomplished player, and then you started this club path, got your club coaching under control and thriving, and then you went out onto the tour. So it was almost like a perfect time, I guess, with your educational background and the things that you'd already achieved in tennis. It was a good stage for you.
3: Yeah, I think timing is so important in life, whether it's business or whether it's tennis. For me, it was like I probably, and this is why I was saying, you know, looking back now, had I gone away and played when I was 18, when I really wanted to play and really felt like I could have made a difference. And you look at players around those times, who did really well. I was very fortunate now, but I didn't. My parents didn't have the financial background to be able to send me away because I ended up going in a totally different pathway and one educationally that I probably would never ever have got had I, you know, traveled. So. Yeah, and I was older, like at that stage after my phys ed, I used to coach basically 7 to 8.30 of the morning, teach phys ed from 9 to 3.30 and start coaching from 4 to 10. Back at very wow. And then you play, you know, you're trying to get a hit in during that time. You hit all Saturdays and then play pennant on a Sunday. That, that was your passion. That's the thing that you loved. And, you know, I used to love teaching phys ed as well. I liked the variety. I was very, very fortunate that way. And I learned a lot about, you know, individuals teaching phys ed as well. But, yeah, as you say, in the travel time, I was probably ready in that I had the playing side of it, had the education and the coaching. And you know there was a person that actually worked for me that got me to go away. And I was fortunate at that time too, that that happened as well.
2: That's an amazing story. Just now I wanna move into where you are at the moment. So obviously you're the head coach of Kuyong, You've been there for a touch over 20 years. It's debatably one of the most prestigious clubs in the world. Do you pinch yourself every day when you look out to those grass courts and say, that's my office?
3: Look, I've been so fortunate. And I guess this is where you talk about timing. When I first started here, it was a couple of members that actually asked me to take it on because the coaching had really disintegrated. And when I got here, I think, I had six names. I had an hour and a half of coaching, and that's all that was here. At a club at, at that stage, I think, may have had around about maybe four or 5,000. We've got 9,000 members here now. So it was an amazing opportunity to, I guess, have the background that I'd had with the playing and the teaching and the travelling to come into this venue. But on the other hand, when I first arrived here, I, I always remember I was given a certain amount of courts, and I went onto this court for the first time, and this lady in her 80s came over to me and abused the heck out of me, and <laughs> said, Sport for thirty years. You can't have a sport, and there's some, you know, amazing, amazing people at this place. I, look, fortunately, this place is a family. It, it, it's a, it's a home away from home, and look, having travelled as much as what I have over all the years to see. Kuyong, it's a rarity. I mean, it was voted the number one club in the world, a private club, about four or five years ago, and as a standalone tennis club for what it's got. And there's nothing you could really want. Although I do, there is one issue. You know, I've got, you know, 40. No, we could expand it so much more but because we've got so many members we can't get any more tennis courts That you know you've got hard courts you've got clay you've got grass you've got the gym you've got the swimming pool the restaurants it's a, a phenomenal club but as i said everyone is so interested here about tennis that's the difference to the local club setup is that you hardly may not have seen that many members whereas here you go up to the restaurants they all want to know what's going on with the tennis and what are you doing you're traveling here who's doing what yeah
2: yeah, I mean, I think one thing that strikes you with Kuyong is even as a tennis coach myself for 20 odd years in other clubs, there's a lot of coaches just like me that want to be members there. And it's an escape for everyone. And it's uh, we're all just crazy about tennis. So it's fantastic. You actually told me about an event that you represented Kuyong in a couple of years ago. And it was at Wimbledon against a few other shabby clubs, the All England Club being one of them. And also the Monte Carlo Country Club might have had a team. So tell us about that event, a few us with that tale.
3: Yeah, there's been some good journeys from tennis. I've been very, very fortunate with tennis. I'll talk about China as well. This one with Wimbledon, though, was the 150th anniversary of Wimbledon. And what they did, they invited 12 clubs from around the world to compete and to celebrate their anniversary. And basically, Klingon was very, very fortunate to be invited. And there had to be a player over 20 and a player over 45 in the teams. And anyway, I got to play with a guy called Greg Jones. Well, how do you let you down, (laughs) mate? It was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the clubs that were amazing. We had people like Alberta Costa from Spain. Wow. There, Kenneth Carlson. There was a whole lot of these players. So the competition was a double and the same with the women. And then there was an older competition again. But basically in this week, financially, I think Wimbledon may have spent about 250,000 pounds on this week. You're 100- joking. We had 100% access to the club in every way. We had tools underneath the ground going up but no one ever gets to see. We had breakfast, lunch and dinners there that were just amazing, amazing food. And then at the night time we had these functions that have all these celebrities there talking and just going back to the you know number one players in the world talking about their journeys. But the tennis side of it, Greg Jones is really good. Jonesy played probably some of the best tennis I've seen. I mean, this is potentially the last time we'd ever get a chance of playing at Wimbledon. And it's like, let's give it a good crack. Well, I think you know, Jonesy was serving unbelievably well and returning. And I just stood there. I was just very, very fortunate to be part of that. And he played amazingly well. And we just... Had, you can't even explain the time. We were with about 12 other members from Cuyon that were a part of it as well. And it, it, it's very hard to explain. It's just nothing that the Wimbledon couldn't have done to make it a better week for us. We had tools all over the place. Your you know own uh, personal locker, I believe? Uh Yes, it was. Yeah, there was a personal locker that you walked in. A person would come up and get you washing each day and wash it. Of that course. Night have it the next morning sitting there in your locker and they gave us so many things and it's so hard to explain. We played on all the courts other than Centre Court which I was even understanding like we had a tour about the Centre Court. Every grass, every piece of grass is under a computer so a tree and pieces of grass, everyone's under a computer and they know that if one hair of grass is a little bit drier, that more water will be put on that area. You just don't get to see these sort of things normally and as I said, the competition was fantastic. The People, we actually got a, a Wimbledon member was attached to our team, and and they took us around everywhere, did everything for you. We had a guy who was, I think, a lawyer and a and doctor, and then they they showed us. It was just couldn't have been better. And the, as I said, the quality of players was just phenomenal, and it was something that you know that's probably once in your lifetime that you're ever going to get something like.
2: Yeah, that. what an amazing opportunity. I'm going to now jump again, and it'd be remiss of me not to mention your extraordinary ITF seniors record. You've won an amazing eight titles, world titles, for your age, best player on the planet. How have you maintained this motivation to keep going, and what separates you from some of the other great players, and a lot of them obviously have been circuit players, but you seem to be able to beat them year in, year out, and I personally think you could probably win the age group a two or below, but anyway... Oh, thanks, that. I guess th- this was
3: part of what I was talking about before is that I never had that opportunity when I was younger to travel and play. And so I looked at this in seniors and I guess there's a combination of so many things. Okay, so you've got one is... Understanding how to train, how to get the most out of your body is really important. I have a motivation, I guess, to keep learning all the time. I I love learning and and I set myself a challenge every year as to whether I want to improve this part of my backhand or this part of my serve or whatever. It's like I need to have a purpose as to why. And I love competition. I mean, I love competing, I love the journey. And look, I've got a saying that I have out there with all the coaches and everything is, success is not an accident, it's a choice. And it's like doing those right things day in, day out is what separates everyone. And and that's what I love doing is love challenging myself to see if I can get better in areas you know and I love playing with young kids I'm so fortunate that way I don't think I trained with anyone older than perhaps 24 years of age.
2: Yeah I mean I recall many times having these incredibly long rallies with you so I know exactly where you're going there I guess your ability to look after yourself, your ability to be, you know, have this penchant for sports science hacks and just keeping on trying to improve your wellbeing, your health. For anyone that obviously people are listening to this, but your chronological age is, or your biological age is just so much different to your chronological age. You've just a piece of, I mean, you're just a health and wellbeing, I wouldn't say freak, but just very, very aligned to that way of thinking. What sort of an advantage has that given you?
3: Look, my wife's very much been into nutrition, so that's helped me a lot. Shout out to Marty. Yeah, she's looked after me very well during this time, so I've got to thank her. But I think the training methods, I've changed a lot. I ended up being in hospital twice when I was overseas in World Championships, uh, once in Turkey, and once in Germany, and both were due to my lower back. And I had 25 years of problems with my lower back, and I could, you know, always at chiropractors, physios, getting injections and a whole range of things that I really didn't understand, and I left that to others to look after my health. And I got to the stage where I said, look, I've got to stop. This is it. It's like this is defining moment. I need to take control. So I did a lot of study. Having my phys ed background was so helpful. I did a lot of study as the best athletes, who I thought was had the best core at the time. And in all my studies, I looked at trampolinists by far had the best core. So I looked at what they did and I thought, how can I modify what they do for tennis? and develop in leg strength, core. So I then set about developing this program, which I've used for the last 12 years. And I know without a doubt, I don't run the streets anymore. I used to love running because it was a, a meditative thing as well, but I don't run anymore. And I do miss it, but I know it's not good for my knees and I know it's not good for my body. So I developed a program where I work on sprint work, endurance, agility, coordination, and works on lymphatic drainage for your health. I can work on uh, specific movements that I do for tennis. And this program that I put together is something that I'm actually going to, to actually market because I know it works. As I said, I've been using it for 12 years and... During that time, I've been you know, fortunate enough to win eight singles titles, but it's like that and thoroughbands, I've really got into that a lot more because I want to be able to train when you travel. So, you know, I don't always have access to weights. So I've actually, weights was always a problem for me because I'd always want to push more and more and more. <laughs> I'd have to injure myself, so. That's the
2: warrior gene coming out in you, Glenn.
3: Yeah, so I had to find another way and thoroughbands were a way for me to keep the strength and be able to really train specifically for tennis. You know, an interesting story going back to the specificity of training is the girl I talked about, Bianca Acquistapachi, we had here. She was training here and she had a birthday. And we got Glenn Archer, who was at that stage, North Melbourne, number one player. Shinbarner of the century, I think. Exactly, exactly. Elite athlete. He was at his peak. So we actually got him out on the court and he didn't last more than 15 minutes. He was the most elite, you know, at batman at that time. But on the court doing tennis drills, he lasted less than 15 minutes of what we were doing, what uncle was doing. And that was probably the most important, even though I'd learned all these things educationally, to see this actually happen to show that specificity of training is so, so important. That I guess this is what helped me a lot in where I, I guess, used my skills in developing programs I wanted for seniors. And so, you know, at the age of, I suppose, 48, I started changing my training significantly. It changed my diet. I, not that I can't go and eat anything, but it's really understanding that the quality of food, foods you have or fuels is really important. And it's got to be a lifestyle. It's something that you've got to do day in, day out. It's not something you do for a week and then go, okay, I've done that. Great little story. I was over in Shenzhen playing the senior tournament, and I don't know if I can say the word that the guy said to me. Maybe you can bleep it out. Can you believe out words?
2: <laughs> I think so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this guy comes up to me and says, oh, Glenn, I, I want to be playing senior's tennis just like you. I want to win some world championships. What do you do? And I told him what I did. And he says, I'll say, it less." He says, oh, shit, I don't want to do that work. I don't do that. <laughs> but, yeah, it- it's interesting. People, you know, 95%, 98% of the population want what, you know, that 2 to 5% have but don't want to put in the work. And it's like you've got to look at it as being a passion. It's something you've got to love doing every day. It just is your life.
2: Yeah, you don't associate fear or discipline to it. It's just what you do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And look for everyone just out there. Uh, excuse me while I, uh, I butt in there. But you're getting some great tips here on obviously some fantastic training modalities, the trampoline. So hopefully there's some veterans listening in, taking some serious notes or any players.
3: Yeah, look, I've got two out there now. Jared Broadbent's been using Jared's number three in the world in the 50 age group. He's been on them. I've got a program with him. Andrew Wade, Ray, who's 70. There's a lot of people who are using it now, And it, but it's, it's how do you use the program properly. You know, you can get on trampoline and bounce and bounce and bounce, but it's how to use the specific movement patterns that enable you to develop the strength specifically. For uh, it
2: makes sense. I mean, it's uh, shunting fluids around the body. It's low impact. It's going to be, you know, a fantastic modality.
3: Yeah, yeah. And look, and it does things such as uh, increases your white blood cells. You know, talk about sticky red blood cells, which actually enables your body to be more oxygenated. And when you actually finish, you actually feel more energized than what you did when you start. But look, there are so many benefits. You know, I've actually had a couple of players over in America using it as well. And great success. I mean, you can do it indoors, outdoors, to music. To, you don't have to be running the streets. And-
2: we know our connective tissue over time and our cartilage wears and this sort of thing. So it, it absolutely makes complete sense. I'm going to skip now a little bit to, and you've touched on it, just some amazing people that you've met across the journey and just some conversations you've had. I think you stayed at a hedge manager's house in the States and coached this person, just people in China. Tell us about a few of the people that you've met.
3: Okay, look, I worked with a guy in LA, I had been up until COVID, actually. He's a billionaire. He actually also was a, he got to about 120, 130 in the world ATV as a junior. Good player. So he understood or understands, you know, the tennis and what is required. But he also applied that to his hedge funds, and he's done exceptionally well. He started from nothing, and I think it's worth about $8 billion or something now. But he was an amazing character. He wanted to be in the top five in the world. And we'd actually got him down to, I think, about 10 at the time before before. before COVID struck us, but he would work in, actually, he worked excessively. He he would get on the court and do four hours and he wouldn't stop. And I just drill drilling and drilling and drilling and he was obsessive, totally obsessive but I learned there's a lot of learnings from all these different people that you work with and how they go about things and yeah, very interesting character and then there's another one, uh, David Morgan, is a, he used to be CEO of Westpac and here he's a, on boards all around the world unbelievable philosophies on life and I used to say things to, about what we do in tennis and, and how we go about different things and he'd actually go, "Geez, that's what we talk about in board meetings with all these, it's the same philosophies
2: you Same know, what, parallels, yeah, yeah
3: you know the same work ethics the same whys, the same directions is all the same as what you do in boards and so it's been interesting in China I had some amazing amazing experiences been over there about 70 for about seven years at different times and there was experiences such as we had this one particular match that I had to play with who's now the deputy premier of China and he was the leader in his province at that time and they have all these exhibition things going on and we were trying to get our programs out to China at that stage in different areas anyway Before I walked on, the court guy comes up to me and says, he must win because they can't lose space over it. And we were playing the to him He could actually play good tennis. And the pressure was, you know, enormous at that stage to have to win this match because this guy I knew couldn't lose the match. And he wasn't that good a tennis player. So it was those sort of experiences. And then we had meetings <laughs> with the premiers of different provinces. Wow. Uh, yeah, Look, look, I've been so fortunate with tennis. The journey of tennis, for me, I've been just so, so fortunate with the people that we've met and what we've been able to do in tennis.
2: So that's a great segue into what's next for Glenn Busby.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what COVID has done, I've, it's really shown me that I've missed so much the playing, like I've uh, being able to compete. And that's a big thing which has helped me enjoy my coaching a lot more, that I can actually get out there, train and work with players as well as coaching. I still have desires. Yeah. I've certainly got more goals that I want to achieve in the senior tennis area, you know, and I'd still play German team tennis. And I love that. It's again, getting back to what we talked about with local clubs. I play with this club over there that it's seven courts in the middle of Dusseldorf and Cologne, very small little club. I played with some really big clubs, but this club's a little family club. They're great sponsors with this guy that owns like seven coals. finances is not an issue for them. But they spent something like 25 years trying to win a German team championships. So what it does, you have zones in Germany. You win your zone and you all come together with your finals at the very end. And I played there. And the first year we happened to win the German team championships there. Well... You know, we had, the places were packed. There was 2,000 people just at this little club. You couldn't fit another person inside it. And you just don't get that back here. You know, it's, I, I know, sorry, i have digressed a little bit, but I just, it's like, I always remember here at Keong, we had, sorry, he's, I've lost his name all of a sudden. He was the top 40 in the world. Fronberg, sorry, Richard. Richard came back here and played State Grade back here. And we had about three people watching. And, and, you know, such a talent who'd just come off the tour, playing State Grade, and there was no one here. And you go over there to Germany, and we were a 60-year-old guy, Playing against some good players from other clubs that had been players, and the interest in seniors is huge overseas. And I think you know, almost seniors is growing bigger overseas than what the you know junior tennis is growing. But you know, getting back to. The enthusiasm in these clubs, these smaller clubs, is just phenomenal. And they, you know, they look after you exceptionally well, but it's also you get to meet the local people. And, you know, you'd walk down the streets and people would be going, oh, I like living and you'd go, <laughs> you'd have no idea. But it was only a small little area. And I love playing German team tennis. You know, what i I got there? I want to keep doing that for years to come.
2: And I think you've hit the nail on the head. The glue around those clubs is definitely, it's social and it's family as well, isn't it?
3: Yeah, look, it really is. And I know you and I, and I know I'm, I'm a fair bit older than you, but we grew up in the, I believe, and, and I know you can't compare generations because there's, you know, you can't compare generations of players, but I think we were so, so fortunate in the era that we grew up compared to what kids go through today with just tournament after tournament, trying to win points here and travelling there. And, you know, there's so much more, Pressures on the kids today to perform and win. You know, not that we didn't want to win, but it's certainly you would come off and, you know, the local, sorry, the, the tournaments such as your Bacchus Marsh, your Shepherds, all the country tournaments we used to go to, they were so social. You know, I remember playing nine matches in one day at the Bacchus Marsh. You just, just stayed on that court for the last day and you just keep playing. Kids today struggle to play two matches in one day. And it's like family, social, that sort of puts it all together. And I think we're losing that part of it. And that's why I guess what I get back to Kuyong and what you were talking about it's a family you know it's a lot more social than unfortunately the local scenes are at the moment but you know as for that yeah I still want to play I still want to travel i still want to develop some players I still think there's a whole range of different things that we can do you know have had a bit of a, a transition had a couple of years off of working in that area and now there's a chance of getting back in there and starting to really develop some good young juniors again moving through
2: well yeah. it's amazing to hear that look this is the last little segment here and you have, I'm gonna give you six questions and you've got in 30 seconds roughly. So you haven't got much time to think, you've just got to pretty much say. So, are you ready to go? Okay. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. Roger or Rafa? Uh, I can't
3: choose between them, I'm sorry. They both have amazing attributes.
2: Not part of the rules. Roger, cause he's sitting behind me. Roger, like it. Elton John or Billy Joel? I picked this for your generation. Oh, Elton John <laughs> Serve or return Serve. Slice backhand or drive backhand Slice backhand <laughs> That was easy yeah. On court coaching or not
3: No I think it comes down to the individual Although yeah I think it, it's got to be not I think at this stage I think the, it depends on whether you're talking about which tournaments, or whether you, if you're talking about juniors, I think it opens up a whole <laughs> problem area. If you're talking about just on... Probably
2: going more towards pro tennis, but we could yeah. Capture Juniors, yeah. Yeah, But I think yeah. that's
3: the way it would end up going. If you're going to have it on tour with everything, it will then siphon down, no doubt. It that would. Yeah, too many problems with that.
2: No, great insights. Well, Glenn, as I said earlier, it has just been an absolute honour. If I could think of a few phrases that sum you up, You've certainly made your own luck. You did it your way and your passion for tennis, even you know the age you are now and you know what you're doing, your passion just jumps through the screen. Thanks very much for being part of this Tennis Victoria podcast, Wayne Busby. Thanks,
3: Paul. It's been a great little journey.
0: Well, Gab, that was a great chat with Glenn, wasn't it? You know, early on, sliding doors moment. He loses that match earlier in his career and doesn't travel overseas as a result and then goes and gets a... PE degree, which has certainly helped him with his coaching.
1: Yeah, it has. And it's funny you say that because I think it says a lot about the role he plays at Kuyong and how much experience he has gained. But it's funny that he didn't travel then, but how much he now travels with the seniors tour. He's overseas all the time, which, as I mentioned in the the lead up to this podcast or in the intro, Glenn has just been announced as the 30-plus tennis senior of the year again. And I say again, it's his fourth time winning that award I think in our nine years of running that event, those Victorian Tennis Awards, so a huge achievement. And for those that don't know, the people, the events, the clubs, uh, depending on the category that win our Victorian Tennis Awards, get automatically nominated for the Nuka Medal the Australian Tennis Awards. So Most Outstanding t- um, Tennis Senior is a category featured at those awards, so Glenn will be nominated. And fingers crossed he becomes a finalist and maybe even wins. That would be awesome.
0: Be awesome if we get all of our Victorians get up at at the Newcombe Medal. But going back to Glenn, though, I think what impressed me the most from hearing this conversation with Paul was just the the research that he does with the, with the tennis coaching, and and in particular, just he wanted to see which athletes had the best core muscles, and so he researched trampolinists and and copied kind of their routine in relation to health and well being. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And then of course all the all the stories he had at Wimbledon and even the stories early on with people playing overseas, like really high quality players, and then coming back to play tennis, Victoria Pennant, which is obviously a, a competition that's nearing its 140th year. So we're
1: going to get sparkles out for that. No, absolutely. He's, um, he's obviously a student of the game, as we like to say, and has learnt a lot along his journey.
0: Thanks to Glenn for his time and and thanks to Paul Aitken for the interview. Remember to subscribe on Spotify to the hit local Play Global podcast, the Tennis Victoria podcast. Follow us on socials at Tennis Victoria and make sure you tell your friends about the podcast. See you next time.